This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a show about Black culture from Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Eric Eddings. And I'm Brittany Luce. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second installment of The Nod Summer Podcast Club. Yes. Whoop, whoop. The Nod Summer Podcast Club is where we are, basically all month long, revisiting the episodes from our archive that are sure to spark some lively discussion, maybe a little spicy discussion, among you and yours. Think of it like a book club of podcasts. That's right. These are the episodes that really had y'all talking when they first came out. And here at The Nod, we want to help you keep those conversations going with your friends and family. So we put together a handy guide on how to form your own club. It's pretty simple. You just wrangle up some people you like. Everyone listens to the episode. And then you get together and talk about it. Snacks are a good idea, too. You can find that guide as well as questions to spark conversation and info on how to get free Nod swag at thenod.show slash podcast club. That's thenod.show slash podcast club. I am so excited for today's installment. It's from an episode called Whole Hog, and it's an interview with Michael Twitty, a chef and culinary historian. He's also a historical interpreter, so he's traveled the South cooking on plantations using the same methods that his enslaved ancestors would have used. He even did it dressed as they would have dressed. Michael's demonstrations are meant to teach audiences both about the history of American Southern cuisine as well as the history of slavery in America. When I originally spoke with Michael, he had just written a book called The Cooking Gene, which has since won, not one, but two James Beard Awards. And seriously, that's like the Academy Awards of food writing. And that's not the only exciting update in his life. So be sure to stick around after the original interview for an update from Michael. He tells me about what it was like to win the food world's highest honor, his recent travels to Africa, and his unfiltered opinions on collard greens. But first, here it is from the episode called Whole Hog, our interview with Michael Twitty. Eric, I want to tell you about this crazy project that I found out about. Okay. So a few years ago, I was scrolling Tumblr. I mean, a lot of us were. That was pretty much all I did back in the day. Anyway, I came across this Kickstarter project for, you know, this black man. He was trying to raise money to tour the American South, growing and cooking Southern food, like in the traditional, like, way back antebellum way, on former plantation sites. 
Wow, that that sounds like an adventure. (laughs) (laughs) So it turned out that this guy was Michael Twitty. He writes a lot about Jewish and African-American food traditions. He often goes by the name Kosher Soul on the internet. You know what I'm saying? Kosher Soul. Get it? You get it? Anyway, he's not like just a food writer. This guy teaches Judaic studies, and he's a culinary historian. So Michael, you know, he raised the money, and he went on this tour— and he dubbed it the Southern Discomfort Tour. And he spent a summer going all around the South. I mean, like from Charleston to New Orleans to, you know, pretty much any city in between. And he did these cooking demos for all types of people, all while wearing the same clothes that would have been worn by his enslaved ancestors. Wow. Would Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, so he wasn't just like, he wasn't just going to the places and cooking and talking to people. He was like, he was doing, I mean, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, this is a, it's a level of commitment that I am uh, not familiar with. Right. Most, <laughs> most of us aren't. Anyway, Michael Twitty, he just wrote a book about his whole experience and he called it The Cooking Gene. And, you know, of course, I had to talk to him and I had a million questions, you know, just about what it must have been like to recreate the experience of cooking as an enslaved person, you know, and to do it for a Southern audience. So I called him up for a conversation. And he started off telling me what it's like to get ready to cook on a plantation. I'm all alone. I'm chopping wood. I'm putting on the clothes. I'm getting ready to smell like human bacon, <laughs> you know, for the next 24 hours. Yeah. You just, you do your thing. And... Wait, you say you do your thing. That I feel like you skipped over a major yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, piece wait, wait, of information I got, right I got there. you. I got you, my sister, because I want people to really understand. When you go to cook at home, what do you do? You open up the refrigerator, go in your pantry, you get the ingredients, you spread them out, you wash and prep them, and you just cook. I got to chop the wood. I got to wring the chicken's neck. Mm-hmm. I got to pluck the feathers. I got to dig the vegetables out the ground. I got to wash the vegetables off. I got to... <laughs> <laughs> I have to I have to light a fire. I have to light a like, what craziness is this? Light a fire, a fireplace going, big fire. Cook the cook the fire down in little coals. Put the pot on the back of the fireplace hearth so that I can get the pot boiling so I can make the the soup or the sauce or the stock. I got to get this going and that going and make sure these pots are clean and make sure they're ready to go. That's 3 hours before I even start cooking. Gosh. I want people to understand. That's what that's what it was like. And that's what you do when you go to do a demonstration. Oh, yeah. You go from soup to nuts, well, beyond soup to nuts. That's right. And some days, it's actually interesting to have it be in real time. In other words, mm-hmm. what it would it be like to have the breakfast ready at, at 7.30, 8 o'clock? What would it be like to then turn around within an hour and have the meal ready by 2? And knowing that it was like 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 courses, if not 12. What did you serve typically? Oh, that's a hard one because it varies by season. What was your favorite thing that you would serve? Well, I love to make okra soup. I love to make barbecue. I love to make fried chicken and, and yeast rolls. I like to make red rice, which is like African-American descendant of jollof rice. And I like to make sweet potatoes roasted in the ashes and watermelon preserves and um, okra pickle and black-eyed pea fritters and all that kind of good stuff. Now I'm upset. We need, we need, to, make, we need to fix that, my sister. I make the best pound cake in open hearth you ever had in your life. I actually do a mean pound cake myself, but in a convection oven. So Honey, it's I not make quite the well same when I make you that sweet potato pie, you're gonna you're gonna lose it. 
Look, I'm coming down. I come to D.C. like four times a year, so you don't have to tempt me with a good time. Cool, cool. It seems like you really know the traditions of your people. And something that I think about a lot when I think about the Cooking Gene and the Southern Discomfort Tour is that there is a lot of beauty in knowing the traditions of your people Mm -hmm. and where those traditions came from. But creating that connection um, between the past and the present, you know— I can't help but think that comes at a painful cost. Absolutely. It's reliving like a generational horror. You know what I mean? It, it kind of feels like a like a double-edged sword in a way. If this were easy, everybody would do it. The only thing I can only I can make it analogous to is if you ever seen the movie Goes of Whoopi Goldberg, right? Yeah. And she fakes being a, a a um a medium. And then all of a sudden the gate gets opened up. And she's a real medium, and she can't handle it mm-hmm. because now everybody wants to. Everybody has like something to say. Come on, come on, we got something to say. That's how it feels. That's how it feels when you roll up on these places, slaveholding properties. You're feeling the energy of our ancestors going. Please tell our story. Come on, that energy hits you from the minute you get there to the minute you leave. And at first, it's extremely scary. I don't mean scary in the eerie sense. Scary in the sense of the baggage. Because you know they're there. They're waiting for you. I mean, can you imagine? Sometimes when I pull up to a spot, I close my eyes. And in my mind's eye, when we go through that gate or go down that long walk of oaks or whatever it is leading to that plantation big house, mm-hmm. I close my eyes and I see the whole whole plantation community standing there waiting for me. Children running beside the car wanting to see me. Mothers sold from their children. Men beat to death. They want me to tell their stories. There's times when I go there and I put on my clothes and I just break down and cry. Hmm. I don't let nobody see me. I just break down and cry. Then sometimes when I leave, I feel so light because they feel good now. They feel like, oh, thank you. Nobody, we, we, we were forgotten. And we're your people. We're your mothers. We're your fathers. We're not just anybody's mother. We're your people, your blood. Emotionally, it's very draining. It's very powerful. And, Why do you say that? Oh, because they just they hit you. They know you're there. And they know that what you're there to talk about. It's like a lot of things are traveling through you. You know where they always say children, they come through you, not to you? Mm. It almost feels like the same thing. So you're feeling the spiritual essence of, of you know, everything around you. You're wearing the representational clothing. You're in these hallowed spaces. And then you cook. You're doing this for hours. And then you feed people. Mm-hmm. All types of people. White people, black people, older people, younger people. And then you guys talk. So what were the conversations like at, at your demonstrations? So one of the ones I point out in the book is when there were some white Southern ladies who were older and they were little hemming and hawing and looking around and grinning. And I thought this was so cute and so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And there were some Germans. And German visitor says, how do you feel wearing the clothes of your ancestors who were slaves? And I said, well, how do you feel being, you know, the generation after the Shoah? And he knew that was Hebrew for the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And he goes... The Holocaust was a terrible thing and never should have happened, neither should have slavery. At which point, the white Southern ladies left. When he, when he grabbed the South by its collar and dragged it into this conversation about, 
legacy and reparations in the past and the present and responsibility and never should have happened. And they rolled out. Wow. And then I had a nice little 20-minute talk with him, his wife, and his brother-in-law. All three of them were born roughly during or right after World War II in the shadows of what was a national insanity. And I explained mm-hmm. to them that I was Jewish. Hmm. And the man said to me, I didn't write this in the book because can, you can't write everything. Mm-hmm. But the man said to me, you know something? I'm so glad that you were born now that I can talk to you instead of my parents because my parents probably would have had you killed. Hmm. That You know, that kind of like, that kind of like, I don't want to ever have this happen again. I don't like this. I know that my parents and my grandparents did some heinous things that weren't right. And just not hearing that from, you know, our cousins, our mm. blood cousins, white Southerners. Not hearing, you know, give give have them give up on that. Mm. You know, they're I get no don't get me wrong because progressive Southern people are white Southern people are some of the prime buyers of my work. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that sort of like, you know, self forgiveness thing, which I don't have. I don't have any problem with. You have if you have no problem saying never again and living by that credo and living up to that. I don't hold you. I don't put blame on you, at all, because you're changing, for the better. Um, it's the people who like, you know, will fight to the death over an idol, a statue. I have serious issues with. And because I know that it's not just statue for them. It's a, it's a symbol of, of voter suppression, symbol of law enforcement overreach that was born in the days of slave catching. I think people have done this, you know, we're cool thing with slavery. That's why we have these what issues you, now. What do you mean we're cool thing with slavery? Like post-racial America? Yeah, this post-racial America began in 1865. I really believe that. For most white folks, post-racial America began in 1865. It didn't begin with Barack Obama. It began with, you know, we don't own you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, I don't, I'm not an avid family guy watcher. I watch <laughs> it when, you know, somebody has something on the TV and I'm walking past the TV. And there's one time I walked right by just at the right time. It was a vignette where this white guy is like harassing and beating on his enslaved person. And then all of a sudden emancipation happens and he goes, oh, we're cool, right? And that's how I and 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 you know all satire implied, I think I get a lot of that energy, like oh we can just drop it. It's okay, we can move on. Nothing to see here. <laughs> and so you and so you created this tour to kind of yeah to to combat that. I'm subversive in my enslaved people's clothing. I don't do this to celebrate the good old days, and mm. I don't do this. To, I don't do this to make white people feel guilty either. I think whether white people feel guilt or not is really up to them. I believe there, I believe there is a certain measure of national guilt that must be assumed. Mm. Germany does it, and if it's okay for Germany, if we all agree that Germany needs that national guilt to sort of, you know, assuage its historical tragedy, then damn right, I feel that's the same thing for America. I just want people to understand that I am coming at them from a, from a place of perfect subversion. I'm not there to make anybody feel comfortable or comforted. I want to disturb their notions of what history is and improve their notions of what the future can be. Some of your encounters were with people who were related to you, Mm -hmm. you know, somehow. Can you talk to me about what it was like, you know, having done the research and knowing who your people were and where they came from and then coming upon 
someone who, you know, now reads and identifies as white, who's also related to you, you know, while you're doing all this work? You know something? <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it's, it's something to be able to go through the South and have white people go, we're probably related. <laughs> that didn't happen 30 years ago. Okay? Yeah. It is something to look in the eyes of a white cousin and see if you see the faces or eyes of your people. And sometimes they'd be shocked to death. They'd just be like, I can't believe. Like the first reporter we had, he's like, yeah, my name is Cliff Bellamy. And I said, Bellamy? My great, 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 great granddaddy was a Bellamy. And see how the blood drained from his face. Like, I thought I was here just to cover your cute little whatever story. Wow. But yeah, I'm really your people. This reporter was white? Yeah. It was the first press coverage we got on the on the tour. Mm-hmm. And he came to my presentation in, in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he turned out to be my cousin. Wow. And how did how do you think how do you think he walked away from that? I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because he didn't write about it in the story. Interesting. He didn't write about it in the story, which is which is which is very telling. What do you think it says? I don't know if he was ready to to put that energy out there to deal with mm-hmm. that. I think I think so for some Southern white people, I think for some black Southern people, period, white and black, let's be real, there is a, there is a certain amount of stigma because this is still a very thorny subject. Just because a good number of people are going, more, are going you know, I'm sure we're related or whatever, is not the same thing as blanket acceptance of the subject. There are still certain things you don't talk about in the old South. In, in company with other people. I do those conversations on places where the conversation cannot help be had. You know, it's not a conversation that you have, you know, down at, down at the restaurant or at the store or the church. But it's a conversation that you have at the, on the historic plantation or museum where you know it's unavoidable. Thank you so much. This is like, this is a moment for me being able to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is great. By the way, if you want to, if you want to be really sexy to the person you're with, smell like human bacon. (laughs) Um, It works every time. That's one of the few benefits of this nonsense. I love the smell of bacon. That actually is, (laughs) would be, would be great if I can convince Carla to, to just wear the scent of bacon all day. You know, actually, you really want to know something? What? I can't believe it. This is so stupid. You know, I used to go to the club a lot when I was younger. Okay, yeah. And now I wouldn't do this, but I, I've worn bacon grease as, like, perfume to the club. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you just dab it, it on your neck? Difference. The sad thing is, I'm for some reason, I'm not surprised <laughs> that this happened. I, I was pretty lucky. I always met somebody when I went out. But, you know, it's like, is it my personality or is it the bacon grease? Who knows? The world will never know. Anyway. After the break, I call Michael up to hear about what it was like to win a James Beard Award. She said Michael Twitty. And I fell out of my chair. I got out there and I was like, whoa, man. Welcome back. So talking to Michael Twitty was seriously such a highlight for me that I couldn't wait to call him up and catch up on his life. And boy, has Michael been busy since our last interview. 
He received the food industry's highest honor, the James Beard Award. He traveled to Africa numerous times to continue his work of tracing our culinary heritage. And also, just like me, he's gotten engaged. Needless to say, we had a lot to catch up on. Hello. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm okay. This is Brittany. I know. Actually, my co-host Eric is sitting here with me. He's producing the interview, but you can't hear him. I can just see him. He's excited to be here. So he says hello. He's waving. (laughs) Yay. We're waving back. I want to pat you on the back for a lot of things, which we're going to get to some of your accolades in a second. But also, I'm just really, I'm proud of myself that I was able to get to you before. Now he's hot like fish grease. You know what I'm saying? I'm glad that I was able to talk Mm -hmm. to you way back when. And they also, that you also deigned to come on the show. (laughs) So, uh, I, um, I, I want, I wanted to support you because it's very important that we support African-American voices and black voices on podcasts and media. It's a two way street, two way street. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't tell it. It's been a, it's been a slog for me in terms of reaching our people. Mm. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. Some people don't dig dig the fact that, you know, I learned this path through practicing historical skills. Um, My body, being a big black man. Um, Some people don't dig that. Some people don't dig the fact that it isn't centered in some other kind of narrative. My joke has been, you know, folks, I did not write Soul Food 3, the the resurrection (laughs) thing, mama. (laughs) You know, and we can all cry and sing baby face songs all night long. No, no. (laughs) That's not what I did. People who were clamoring for recipes, for example. If you want recipes, there are hundreds, thousands of black cookbooks. Support Mm. them. We'll buy them, read them, and talk about them and talk about their voices. But the cooking gene is, um, you know, Toni Morrison's something really brilliant. She said something to the effect of, there must be a record. She was referring to activists. She said, well, 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 Tony, why aren't you in the, on the street? Cause, Cause I'm an editor at Random House and there must be a record. I'm here creating that record, mm. both through my writing and through my editing. So for me, the record is what are the facts behind the recipes and the history? What ground us as a people? I don't regret putting myself on the cover. I don't regret wearing my historical clothes. I don't regret being in the space that I was in. You know, once you do your DNA, once you find out where you come from, the continent, mm-hmm. and once you make all the historical links, and once you show other people how to do it for themselves, there is no question about where we are, where we come from, and what ground we stand on. Hmm. I think a major thing that we need to mention about the book is that it won the 2018 James Beard Award for Best Book. Yeah. James Beard Award is like, I mean, that's like that's like the Oscar of food. Yep. It shocked the hell out of me. Did you cry Halle Berry tears? You know what? Here's how I went down. <laughs> I was on a mega bus, honey, from D.C. to New York. What? I was in the back of the mega bus looking like Eminem before he went out and battled in eight miles. <laughs> I got this expensive-ass hotel room for no reason mm-hmm. because I was only going to be there for like 18 hours. Yeah. I put on every ring I bought in Ghana, Nigeria, and Senegal. I wore my dashiki. I wore my dress pants, but I wore my kente cloth over them. The full kente cloth. Uh-huh. And I was scared to death. I knew I was walking into a room 
where there were people who told me no, who told me that I could not be the master of my own vision mm. or the vision when it came to our history. Mm. And then they announced my category, which was food writing. Mm -hmm. She said, Michael Twitty. And I fell out of my chair and my cloth dropped off me. <laughs> oh. I told them, I said, no, no, hold on. I'm not going to walk up and just dashiki. I'm going to wear the cloth mm. in the proper way. And I got out there and I was just like, whoa, man. And I was book of the year. First black American. Wow. Wow. The very same people who were in that room who were like, nah, we don't want you to be Jewish. Nah, I don't like the gay thing. You shouldn't be representing fucking food because look at you. And I'm guess what? They had to watch me up to get that medal. Mm. Yeah. How does that feel? You do not get so many American foods without us. Right. So, like, how does it feel to be the first black American to win that award? Extraordinary. For me, the most important thing was be able to get up there and just say the names of my ancestors. When I got up there, I mentioned my um, fifth great-grandmother, Sarah Bowen, mm. who is the only person in my family tree who I know made the Middle Passage. Wow. Wow. Let the people in the audience know. They were not just seeing me. They were seeing the thousands of people that led to my creation and to every other black person in this world who shook the world and not only gave it a soundtrack, but gave it a cuisine. Andrew Zimmern and Francis Lamb like stood right up and gave me a standing ovation. And then like Padma Lakshmi, oh my God, Padma. Oh. She was just like, I've been waiting to meet you. And she like took a selfie with me and I was like, so great. It was like awesome. That's so dope. It was one of the best nights of my life. But you know what I did the next morning? What'd you do? I got on a train at three o'clock in the morning uh -huh. from New York to Williamsburg, Virginia to do my historical interpretation. It felt like the people who I interpret, who I bring to life, it was like a victory day for them. I was like, hey, y'all, not only did I come back to you, but this is for you. Hmm. This is your story. This is so people will know your names. People will never forget who you are. The fact of the matter is it's not my accomplishment. It's for the people who come after me, people who came before me. That's the African way. Knowing that we are the descendants and we are also the ancestors. Hmm. That is our culture. Coming up after the break, Michael continues tracing his culinary roots and his actual roots all the way to Africa. So since Michael was on the show, he's gone to Africa for several culinary tours. He tells me the tours are meant to rejuvenate and educate. Basically, Michael and the other chefs that he takes with him, they go to different countries in Africa learning traditional methods for sourcing and cooking different foods. Michael tells me that he's traveled to Africa five times, visiting six countries. The last trip was Benin, Togo. Then before that uh, was Cameroon. Before that, Ghana, Nigeria, and Senegal. Wow. How was it different to go to Ghana versus, you know, traveling throughout the South? I guess one of the biggest differences is that you are submerged in a, a Black world. Hmm. 
You get off the planes, black folks everywhere. The money has black people on it. You never are allowed to forget that at one point in time, all of your people, their center was themselves. Hmm. When you spent like three or four days in the heart of West Africa, hmm. first time you see a white person, you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> like, wait a minute. You really freak out. Because they look, they stand out. After you've been in the village, after you've been in the countryside. And when you go to village, Brittany, mm-hmm. that's when you—that's when all the things you, you picked up from the deep south come to life. The way the elders interact, the way the children behave. You go to Africa and you go, wow, that's the same kind of vibe mm. as when we're in the south. The funniest thing for me was this little boy mm-hmm. in the village. Mm-hmm. And as we go, a car is like speeding past this household. And this poor little boy is screaming and hollering. And his mama has him in this big um, tub being bathed. Mm-hmm. And I joked with, with one of our guys and I said, man, y'all get everything but the Vaseline. <laughs> and he said, no, no, we got the Vaseline too. And it was funny because he got me, I got him. We both had that same experience growing up of when you were little and mama would give you a bath and scrub your skin raw. <laughs> you know, you don't know how black you are until you go to Africa. Mm. Your Africanness is maybe different, but your blackness is definitely intact, I assure you. <laughs> I still have yet to have that fully enveloping experience of being not just in all black space, because I went to an HBCU, but when you're in all black space, you're in all black space that's within a larger mainstream white majority structure. Right. What is it like? Like, how, like, I guess I'm wondering, like, was it disorienting being in this, like, all black country. You know what? You get used to it real quick. <laughs> you get used to it real quick. And it's funny because I think we have all these myths about black versus African versus Caribbean. Uh-huh. What those words mean? You know, um, one of the one of the like endearing moments was when we were in Senegal, and I started singing this spiritual, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, all the young men who were working behind the desk, all four of them, start clapping in unison on beat. There you go. In a Muslim country. Like, they they knew that they had the same, <laughs> like, thing in them that I had in me, and it didn't matter. Or when I was in Nigeria, we go into the Eze, the king's house, uh-huh. in Igbo country. And they're like, oh, we have these wonderful foreign beverages for you. I'm like, okay, that's cool, because it's hospitality, right? Yeah, yeah. And they give us malt liquor. And I'm looking at them, and I'm trying not to laugh. And they look at us giggling. They're like, what, what's so funny? And then, like, the king is, like, decked out in leopard print. And, like, there's gold chains everywhere. And we're just like, oh, Lord. We done come to the heart of Negritum. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's that. There's that. But there's also this. There's also this. It was very emotional for me. Very emotional for me. I mean, it, Africa will make you cry. The, from the minute they tell you, welcome home when you go off the plane. It's really impactful and powerful. You know, when we go to the when we go to the castles where the where our ancestors were taken away, mm-hmm. that's devastating. I couldn't go into the women's dungeon. There was nothing keeping me from going in that dungeon, except this invisible wall of pain I felt. I said, "You will not go in there because it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt so bad. I cannot touch the space." 
I had a grandmother in this space, and she suffered, and she doesn't want me going in there. I can actually understand why aspects of it would be draining. And I don't know a single Black person who's traveled to Africa, especially a Black American person who's traveling to Western Africa, who's like, I went there and I took photos and I drank pina colada and I went surfing. Right, right, right. And it was relaxing. So I understand, I get it. But I'm wondering, like, what's on the other side of that coin? Like, what's on the cool side of the pillow? The good side? The positive side? The happy side? Yeah. Oh, the food. (laughs) (laughs) like in Senegal there's this food called dibi and dibi is like lamb barbecue they roast the lambs whole on a stick in this like fiery hole in the ground and they pull the meat out and then they slice it really 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 thin and chop it up Mm. like barbecue and they give you mustard sauce and hot pepper sauce and and maggi bouillon cube crushed up and all those other things and you go to the bakery, you get your the boulangerie, you get your French bread, Ooh. and baby, you chow down. That sounds incredible. Oh, yeah. It's the best thing ever. On a more personal level, I saw that actually both of us have reached a specific milestone in the past year, which is that you and I are both engaged. Congratulations to you. Thank you so much. I've been engaged since last November. Let me be honest. I haven't done shit as far as wedding planning is concerned. I hear you. I hear you. Look, I'm on long engagement too. Ain't no, ain't no shame. I've opened a spreadsheet. We have opened a spreadsheet together <laughs> and we have selected the city that we will get married in. I'm getting married at Colonial Williamsburg. Really? Yep. And I'm getting married. Hopefully we're, we're figuring this out now um, for permission to get me get married at the Randolph house where you did all my cooking. Wow. Why? Why that location? I mean, for me, that's a very, um, very transformative, very spiritual space. Mm. But also, like, for us as a couple, like, he got up though, all those mornings, would come to me at the, at the Randolph and, mm. you know, help me with the setup and then run around, disappear, and then come back just when it was time to eat. <laughs> you know, it's interesting getting married on a plantation. It just makes me think about, like, you know how it's kind of like a popular thing for white people to get married on plantations. Yeah, himself. but it's a little, little, little bit different. Yeah, talk it, to it, me it, about it, that. I know it's got to yeah. be different. It's a little different because I don't want to. I don't want the columns. There'll be there'll be none of that. Uh-huh. There'll be none of this. The Randolph House is one of the oldest houses in Williamsburg. I don't know if you know this or not. Williamsburg was majority black. I didn't know that. Fifty-two percent of Williamsburg was black. We're not even counting the two to three percent native mixed. Muslim and Jewish that was also living in the city of Williamsburg. So Williamsburg was a 54, 55% non-white town. We ran the show, the market, the labor, the transportation. Our languages were heard in the street more than white people's languages. Hmm. Knowing what you know about Colonial Williamsburg, what does it feel like for you to come back to this place for an event, a wedding, a wedding for you, a wedding that's celebrating the union of a black man. That's an event that they never would have been able to have on that land back then. Right. What does it feel right. like for you to come back there and host that sort of event in that space? Reclamation, because in that space, the Randolph property, uh-huh. they had the most enslaved people in the city of Williamsburg. Behind that big house was a black community of almost 27 individuals. I mean, can you even imagine? Hmm. It was a black community. So I'm wondering, what you gonna eat? Oh, girl, we gonna have 
West African brisket. Ooh. We're going to have fried chicken. Girl, we're going to have it all. But I, I promise you this much. I ain't doing the cooking. <laughs> nope. And everybody be asking me, oh, Twitty, you going to do the cooking at your wedding? No, why would you do that? <laughs> Whoa, no. crazy. No. I'm excited. We're going to be doing a lot of different customs. My mentor, my, my uncle, I call him my uncle, Robert Watson, he's going to make the broom. Mm. I'm going to jump over. I'm going to have a, a, a door-knocking ceremony from Ghana. What's a door-knocking ceremony? You give the family of your spouse a couple of trinkets, saying, hey, can we do this transaction? Like a dowry? Yeah, exactly. But they ain't getting nothing. nothing of value in American terms there'll be no dishwashers being delivered you know Michael I got one more question for you on the topic of food yes so since I interviewed you two years ago we have this segment now called to go plate where we will interview different black folks and ask them sort of what's the blackest food to them so I want to ask you since I didn't get the opportunity to ask you before Michael Twitty what is the blackest food to you greens Collard greens. greens. I'm going to tell you something. Other folks eat them because there was a black woman at some point in their family history who made them. Mm. Let's not even let's not even play around. I judge the 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 Jewishness, the blackness, the the Koreanness of a food by outsider resistance reaction. (laughs) Black eyed peas are a close second. Everybody eats barbecue and fried chicken now. That's true. I'm going to tell you right quick. Those are dear in my heart. But it's the dreadful, delicious funkiness of greens. Yes. Yes. That is so soul. And it's, it's emblematic of our history. If I may give you this one-minute history lesson. Mm-hmm. The West Africans were eating 30, 60 different types of greens no matter where you were from. The wow. West Africa. Wow. So collards. They are from Eurasia. When the Portuguese come with the slave trade to West Africa, they bring collards and kale with them. Mm. They take off like wildfire. One of the early chroniclers says, and in Ghana, these black people go crazy over these greens. They love the, the green soup that the Europeans, he means Portuguese, brought. And they make it violent with heat. <laughs> and all I could think about was my grandmother with the greens on the plate, with the soda bottle that had been, you know, the, the pricked up top. And she put those peppers in there from her garden mm-hmm. and sprinkle that hot pepper vinegar over them greens. And so for me, greens are us. They are a symbol of our, our resilience, a symbol of our personal transformation that make us uniquely black diaspora people. These traditions we're already changing on the coast of Africa and came with us. We, we, we were such a brilliant people. We still are brilliant people. And our brilliance comes from the fact that we can take anything and blackify it. Mm. I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? One thing I will say <laughs> is that the last time I talked to you, you talked about making pound cake on an open hearth, making red oh. rice. And I haven't had any. I haven't had none. Yeah. We go. We gonna have to. We gonna have to hook you up. That's my what I'm saying. Truthfully, I might come down there, and we might have to cook collard greens together. Oh, I, I, I believe this. I'm ready. Anyway, thank you so, so, so much, Michael. And we'll be talking thank to you, you soon. Thank you, Nod. 
I want some greens too. Uh, Eric's yelling in the background. He said he wants some greens too. Ah, love it. See, look at that. I interviewed Michael Twitty two years ago. I set up a nice rapport. And then as soon as I go in to ask for some collard greens, who pipes up in the background? But Eric, this is very typical. It's very typical behavior. Now, look, this episode, I mean, it's just full of everything from like history to food to family lineage. And Michael's obviously hilarious, but he's also so knowledgeable. There is so much for you to talk about with your own podcast club. So make sure to get your group together to talk about this episode ASAP. And don't forget to check out our handy guide on how to start your own podcast club at the nod.show slash podcast club. So talk, talk amongst yourselves. Tell us what you talk about. We want to know. Contact us to let us know what you're talking about with your podcast club on Twitter at the nod show. The Nod is produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Additional production assistance on this episode from James T. Green. Our senior producer is Sada Abdurrahman. This episode was edited by Annie Rose Strasser and Sarah Saracen. This show is mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music credits, check the show notes. I'm about to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. that I think people ask anybody who wins an award that has like a physical element to it. Like you get the medal when you win the James Beard Award. Mm-hmm. Where do you keep it? Well, first of all, when I was going down to Virginia to do my little Kunta Kinte routine, trust and believe I had the medals on my <laughs> you neck. You did not call it a Kunta Kinte. You did not. Hold up. You did not call it a Kunta Kinte routine. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I, had, I had my medal swinging, honey. <laughs> Hollywood swinging, <laughs> like cool the gang back in the day. I was like, I was like clanging, boy. I got that. I got in the business class section. The white folks looked at me like he got changed. Like, uh huh, I do. James Beard Awards, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was swinging, girl. I was hard pressed to take the medals off. I really was. I bet.